This week we had an amazing opportunity to speak with Emmanuel Wilkins, one of the leading saxophonists on the New York scene right now. Emmanuel is a graduate of the Juilliard School and has played with some of the world's finest jazz musicians, heavyweights such as Swinton Marsalis, Gerald Clayton, and more. We discussed various topics, including his debut album Omega, as well as his approach to music from practicing to finding his own voice. Enjoy. How did this all come together and how did you set up this collaboration with uh, Blue Note? Yeah, um, it came about, uh, it started off on the road with uh, Jason Moran. He, he took me out on the road um, and I was at a band already and uh, we had been playing for maybe a year and a half or so. Um, and I had asked him to, I had asked Jason to produce the record on the road um, and he had told me to wait initially and, uh, but one of the gigs we did in LA, he had reached out to Don Was, the president of Blue Note, uh, uh-huh. to come through the gig, uh, and he heard me there. We we talked a little bit afterwards, um, and then once it was time to record the record, Jason uh, sent it to him, and um, Don Don was interested. So, sure. But some of these songs are as old as since you were in high school. Like, how did you go about compiling all of them? And yeah. Uh, man, a lot of it was uh, just kind of um, trying to find the best music out of the repertoire that the band had at first initially. Um, and then it kind of got into figuring out what was like, what's the through line of, of all the music? Um, what is uh, like kind of the overall narrative uh, about just, I don't, I don't know, like what what my music up until now I was I was kind of writing about the subject matter, um, and I kind of stumbled upon this idea of like, um, like abject sublime, um, like stuff that's like really grotesque, and it's also like super beautiful at the same time. Just juxtaposing the two, kind of right next to each other, uh, and so the record kind of became about finding stuff in the repertoire that uh, did that within like intra song. Wise, but then also like um just you know maybe tune to tune so there are some songs where it's like just about um you know beauty and then there's some songs that are just about you know grotesque material or you know abjecture um but then there's also tunes that kind of embody both things within the same song you know yeah how did you come upon that idea of this sort of abject sublime um how did you sort of settle on that kind of a theme for the album um it it really it it really kind of came about thinking about how i wanted to uh speak to black communities um i I feel like my my music has always been kind of at some sort of intersection between like black identity uh and spirituality in a way um and so a lot of the music um was kind of geared towards like trying to figure out what it actually means to hear what blackness kind of sounds like you know and yeah. I've, I've been interested in that with in, in like fashion or art like like i can look at a carrie james marshall uh painting or a david hammonds or um or a glenn ligon and it like there's something that actually looks um it, it like it it looks black you know um and so i was i was interested into like what does it mean to like sound black you know i think jazz is like what's interesting about jazz is it's like the only well i say black music in general is the only situation where we really see 
um, black people like fully actualized, you know, in a space, you know. Uh, and so I think that there is something that kind of codifies what, I don't know, Af like the African-American sound is, uh, you know, regarding, you know, blues music, um, you know, soul music, funk music, jazz music, et cetera, hip hop. Yeah. Um, and so I was just kind of interested in like, it's the idea of like when, you know, when we're living life, we're, we're living life on two planes consistently. One of, like I said, supreme objection and then supreme sublimity, you know, like Dave Chappelle, uh, Black Twitter, TikTok, you know, all of these mm -hmm. things are like in ways, you know, um, making light in a way of super grotesque material. Slave play, uh, it's a play by Jeremy O'Harris. Uh, it's got like 12 Tony nominations. And that's facing a lot of like, a lot of backlash right now uh, for that kind of reason. It's like, you know, man, how, how, you, how are you gonna like make light of this, um, you know, kind of horrific kind of idea, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think, Black, black, like black life in general is, is much about those two things uh, kind of juxtaposed against each other all mm -hmm. the time. Yeah. So did you, why did Jason Moran uh, tell you to wait to record the album? Were you still in school at the time? I was, yeah, I was still in school, but I, I, I think it was partially because he hadn't heard the band. And I think okay. he, uh, he encouraged me to do a lot of research too. Um, he, he told me, he was like, man, check out everybody's first record. Um, mm -hmm. Me and him kind of uh, had a uh, not opposing viewpoints on a first album, but uh, uh, maybe he he was he, he really stressed the idea of like the fact that you know it's your first record, you know. Um, yeah. Booker Little died at twenty three. You know, I'm putting my first mm -hmm. record out when I'm twenty three, so um, it is important to kind of you know think about what the statement's going to be, uh, what you want. The tone to be um but then also i had heard from kendrick scott who uh asked the same question to terrence blanchard terrence was like man it's all about a body of work it's about building yeah. a larger body of work it's not about one record or so um hearing both kind of uh things in my ear was was actually good for me um you know it kind of you know balanced balanced myself out in terms of what i thought um thought about the first record you know i was i was serious about it and you know i mean the band was serious we we were prepared uh so it wasn't no thing like you know we went in the studio and we played it like it was another gig you know yeah. but i also didn't have that stress on me like oh man you know i did have kind of the big picture aspect of like you know this is one in hopefully many so mm -hmm. and when you were checking out these uh um, debut records were there any that sort of stood out to you or that um you uh yeah J i mean jason's first record uh steve coleman's first record okay. um mm. ambrose Akin musery's first record mm. uh yeah those 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 were main ones he he basically encouraged me to check out like people you know who are still alive their first records like you know how what what was their you know kind of uh how they go about things. Uh, Greg Osby's first record. Um, yeah. And I, he, he, he also like stressed to me that the fact that like some, some people's first record, it's like, we're a flop, you know? Yeah. So like understanding, 
Um, and I've always been about this too. It's like getting down to like the real DNA of like what makes something good, what makes something bad. Um, and just, yeah, trying to find like the deepest layer of, of all those things. Um, cause I feel like that's really the key to growth and doing things right. You know? Sure. Yeah. For sure. We wanted to kind of talk a little bit about your approaches with, um, acting as a sideman versus leading a band and how you kind of approach those two different maybe mindsets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, man, it's, it's, it's cool because I feel like, well, I, I, I did, I did start to lead a band when I was really young. I started leading a band maybe, uh, I was like probably 15 or 16, cool. um, in Philadelphia. Sure. Uh, I didn't really have like a co- cohesive, like, band sound or or had like i didn't really had a i didn't call the same musicians all the time but i gotten used to what it meant to like put people together put a show together put a set together um and rehearse you know uh and what it did was it really kind of gave me context and it helped me be a better side man you know because i understood like um what the demands were um as a leader what you know what a, what a leader wanted and i also realized like how to like how to realize a a band leader's vision you know um i think that's the most important thing in terms of the playing that a side man can do is really like hop on you know the the bandwagon in terms of what the leader uh is envisioning you know trying to get inside of the head in terms of like what what the real meaning behind the music is not extra musical but actual like the musical meaning you know behind each phrase uh and figuring out how to like realize that and then take it, then put your, then project yourself onto it. You know, it's like, you got to figure out what, what they wanted when they wrote this. And then you got to say, okay, now I'm playing this. So like, what, what do I bring to that? You know? Uh, so yeah, they, they work hand in hand. They're like, as much as they're different, they're also very the same. Um, I tend to take a lot of liberties as a side man partially because I, I want to be stubborn in a way, you know, I want to, like, I want people to call me because it's me, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what people like when they call me, um, is that I kind of act, I act as a leader as well, you know, in the sideman situations, I think like a leader, you know, mm-hmm. um, in terms of decision-making, uh, and I take risks, you know, I think that's one of the biggest things is like, you still want to make the most out of the music. Like you say, you serve the music more than you serve the leader, in my opinion, you know? Um, And if you think that way, I mean, obviously you want to listen, listen to what they, uh, what they have to say, but ultimately if they're not saying anything to me, I'm, I'm trusting the music above, above, above anything, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You talked a lot about sort of um, being still yourself, at least within the confines of what the leader uh, is trying to go for. And I was wondering a little bit about that, sort of your own creative voice and finding that and developing that. What kind of uh, ways do you go about sort of carving out your own voice inside yeah, the jazz sort of language. language? Yeah. Um, man, uh, finding your own voice is, is interesting. I, I feel like it's actually, uh, it's extra musical. It's, it's philosophical. It's, it's mo- uh, mostly about your values uh, um, and figuring out how to like project that onto the music. Uh, other than that, it, it comes down to 
I think what's, what's really nice about being a musician is that we kind of act as curators in a way. We get to curate our own, like, like sound. You know, we get to curate our own compositions. And what I mean by that is, like, I can pick, like, 10 people I want to sound like. I can learn to sound like them. Like, take different aspects of their playing, you know. Mm-hmm. And by choosing these, like, uh, tidbits of John Coltrane, tidbits of Charlie Parker, tidbits of uh, Lester Young, tidbits of uh, Johnny Hodges, tidbits of Benny Carter, tidbits of Ornette Coleman. Now I'm able to find myself within that because I'm the sole chooser, because I'm the curator, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, like that, and I think it's always been like that, you know? Uh, like John Coltrane, you know, and Dexter Gordon, or, you know, Eric Dolphy, Charlie Parker, Ornette Coleman and Charlie Parker, or, you know, Charlie Parker and Lester Young. Um, it was always this kind of idea of like, well, like there's a direct link. um, And I'm me because of what I choose to do differently. Like Charlie Parker was like, man, I'm, I'm going to play more, you know, I'm going to play more than Lester Young, but I'm going to like play with the same, like quote unquote coolness that Lester played with, you know? Um, So, you know, it's, it's, it's like a combination of like, imitation and then also uh like some soul searching in terms of like what you feel you can bring to the music and what's missing you know yeah so would you say that um i mean talked about your influences and sort of taking different aspects of of their playing putting it into yours um would you say that's more of a conscious decision when you play like you you want to sound like um john coltrane or ornette coleman or somebody like that or do you think it just sort of sneaks into your playing just passively i guess by by listening i i like it to seep in passively i think mm-hmm. that's the most organic way uh i think the the work is behind the scenes you know mm-hmm. um it's 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 all about you know uh the the, the practice sessions uh, in terms of emulation um in that way and then once once you get on the bandstand, I I try to not think of those things yet. Some I mean sometimes it does see, seep into the consciousness. Um, uh, someone actually uh, this great piano player Fareed Baron, uh, told me he he hit me to um, this thing about the John Coltrane Quartet where, uh, basically, anytime like Train would play this thing, but do a bit, but do a bit, but do a bit, like he would he would do this like and uh that was apparently a uh an ode to like fast waller you know mm-hmm. um and so that was like that's an example that i can think of of a co- conscious decision to um you know, kind of acknowledge something or or like consciously put it in into the into the space uh versus let it seep in passively so i think i think it's a uh, a blend but i would say it's like 80 20 yeah you know yeah for sure yeah and you talked a little bit about um philadelphia you grew up just outside philadelphia but i'm assuming you spent a lot of time playing in the city um philadelphia's got an extremely rich jazz heritage and a great um great legacy of jazz john coltrane spent some time there uh christian mcbride mccoy tyner they're from philadelphia do you feel that um sort of presence um yeah is jazz a big presence in philadelphia 
Yeah, I I think a hundred percent. Um, man, I yeah, I I, uh, I owe a lot of my development, um, a lot of my sound, um, and a lot of uh, I guess kind of my mindset towards the music to Philadelphia. Um, you're right. The influence of John Coltrane on Philadelphia is supreme in a lot of ways. Uh, like I always tell people this: like if you go to jam sessions. Uh, what's interesting about Philly is like you like instead of them playing like I don't know maybe up jump up jump spring or I don't know uh, something like that they're calling like resolution or okay. uh, you know passion dance or impressions wow. and people play it for thirty minutes forty yeah. minutes you know uh, <laughs> you know you so get to Philadelphia sometime man <laughs> yeah man no it's, it's it's deep and I didn't realize that it was different until I moved to New York and I'm like, Oh yeah. So that's like not normal, yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, but it, it was always just kind of, it was a spiritual thing. It was like everybody on the bandstand was always kind of uh, dedicated to like reaching for something deeper, you know, mm-hmm. a, a something higher. Uh, and that, you know, that was, that was really special for me. It, it wasn't just about playing for 40 minutes. It was like, no, we're trying to get to, we try to get there. You know, we're trying to find a place. Yeah, you know, um, and uh, yeah, that was it was special to me because everyone was on the same wavelength. You know, yeah. it wasn't like like some people were just up there playing for forty minutes. Everyone was like, "Nah, like we trying to we trying to hit." You know, we trying yeah. to go higher. You know, it's crazy, man. Yeah, and cool. that kind of soul searching and like reaching for spirituality did that relate a lot with the fact that um, you were going to church and stuff, and that was sort of your introduction to the instrument, right? totally yeah i mean i yeah i think it was uh yeah yeah exactly um i think i was getting that like uh spiritual food from from both realms you know it's like whether i was going to a session or i was you know playing in church every sunday it was it was coming from both places you know um and i think in the music that's it's always been my pursuit to kind of live in that middle ground between both things you know yeah i remember looking through one of your interviews even mentioning how the you spent some time outside of the coltrane house and then you even visited uh cousin mary once in philadelphia i'm sure those yeah. experiences really helped shape sort of your uh interest and in movement in jazz or totally totally yeah. yeah and so then after your time in philadelphia what made you end up going to new york and attending juilliard and things like that how did that all come about yeah, I just, um, I mean, my parents wanted me to go to college. I also thought it wasn't a bad idea. <laughs> uh, and um, Juilliard was probably my first choice. I wanted to be with Winton. Um, that was a big reason why I went. Uh, and then also, I also really enjoyed um, the music of the 1920s, the music of the 1930s. Um and that seemed to be the only uh, collegiate institution that I could go to um, to actively play the, that music. Um, music of like Don Redman, Fletcher Henderson, King Oliver. Uh, you know, I I didn't think I would get that anywhere else. So um, that was a big, those, those were two reasons for me going there was kind of to fill in the holes in my playing uh, and really get a good, four years of, of, um, 
playing older music that I probably would never do again in my life, you know? Uh, and, and I haven't yet, <laughs> you know, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't played that much, uh, that much older music since, since then. Um, but I'm thankful for it. Uh, and yeah, I, it was, it was also just about being in New York. You know, I, I, I know I wanted to go to New York, um, and be in the scene that, uh, I, any any musician that would come to Philadelphia, I would always go to their shows, badger them after the gig, and you know ask them a bunch of questions, mm-hmm. uh, including Jason. Um, and so, I felt like a lot of the musicians in New York uh, would be able to kind of take me under their wing and, and nurture me, you know, kind of get get me into the scene. Yeah, absolutely. So while you were at Juilliard, um, it seems like, I mean, you've played with so many great musicians, you know, Gerald Clayton, Wynton Marcellus, you were talking about. Um, were a lot of these gigs, uh, did you get them while you were at school? Yeah, man, I, I, I was hustling. I was hustling. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, um, yeah, I, I, my, my whole philosophy was like late nights, early mornings, you know, mm-hmm. I had 9 a.m. classes, 8 a.m. classes, but I was also, you know, trying to be at Smalls with Roy Hargrove at, yeah. you know, three in the morning, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was no balance, you know. You know, when, when people ask me, like, you know, how, how do you balance this? Like, no, balance? Man, I'm an artist. Like, balance? You don't have balance? Like, <laughs> like what are we balancing? Like, no, we, we, we live, we live, like, Peter Tottering, you know. So, I was always about kind of giving 200%, you know, it was never like 50, 50 or, you know, 75, 25. It was like, no, I, I got to just give a hundred percent to both things, you know, to being active on the scene, to meeting musicians, to, you know, going to air parks, house and working on compositions, but then also going to Andy Farber's composition class, you yeah, know? For sure. yeah. yeah. And in terms of that schedule, I mean, you said like balance is not such thing as balance. Yeah. <laughs> Were there times though that that became taxing and you had to maybe take a little bit, or were, did you just manage to sort of maintain that somehow? Were there any tricks or stuff that you would tell yourself to kind of? Man, it's interesting how <laughs> there's no strategies. I have no, I have no good answers. But um, <laughs> I think <laughs> the uh, the really astonishing thing about the human body is that you find like things work out, you know. However, mm. however they work out and. Um, I, I just, I made it a point to say, I'm, no, I'm going to do both things, you know? Uh, and obviously, obviously there are moments where you gotta, you give in to one or the other. Yeah. Um, but if the mentality is I give a hundred percent to both things, you know, I had, I had great grades and I also, you know, was, pl- we're playing a lot of gigs and missing a lot of school, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you, if, if you had a mentality of like, look, I got, I'm going hard in, in both, uh, you know, both parts of, of, of life. I, I think it's possible to do it. Um, I was just on top of like making sure I, you know, I knew the handbook <laughs> for one, you know, it was like, I need to know what my rights are in terms of, yeah. you know, getting in trouble. <laughs> um, sure. but then also, um, you know, I, I would, I was really on top of like, you know, emailing my teachers, having really good relationships with my teachers. Um, and, you know, they, they understood, you know, if like, I remember uh, my first tour with, my, with Jason Moran was, I think it was like a month long tour, you know? And so I hit all my teachers up 
in the beginning of summer, you know, like, hey, guys, I'm going to be missing like a month. How can we make it work? You know, um, so it was, it was very much so a collaborative process with my teachers um, in terms of, you know, and, and they understood. It was like, oh, yeah, you know, like that, you know, they're on the scene, too. So they, they knew Jason. Jason was their friend, you know, so they're like, oh, yeah, you know, you should definitely do this. It's a great opportunity. Let's figure out how you can, you know, uh, make it happen, you know. Yeah. yeah, and talking about sort of the New York scene and playing with some of these, like, absolute incredible musicians, when you're first time meeting certain musicians, such as like Wynton Marsalis or something, uh, what kind of approach do you take? Are, are you trying to stay calm or just being yourself? Or like what kind of advice would you give someone to you know handle that kind of situation? Yeah, I, I think um, what I really realized uh, is that a lot of um, a lot of the scene in general is very much so about um, kind of uh, building relationships, um, kind of a, a like a homie mentality, you know. Um, and what I realized is, like, it paid off the most when I was just like developed, just like really good friendships with people, you know, me and Air Park just became really cool friends. It was never like a, um, like he, he understood there was a deep respect, uh, from me, but it was never like, uh, I was never like the, the annoying little kid, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, you know, uh, I also was that to, to some people, you know, and it, that also works, you know? Um, but I think it's, it's really just about like, kind of being honest and being uh being really yourself you know me being the annoying little kid was nice because they recognized that it was genuine you know right. it was like me being like yo what should i be checking out like you know um but i don't think i remember yeah i i used to i used to be like really starstruck um but once you move to new york the, it, it really that goes away really fast because like like you're you're at smalls at two AM with the heaviest dudes and they're just mm -hmm. chilling. You know? They're not doing anything. <laughs> you know, it's not it's the the barriers kinda go away because everyone's kinda on the same playing field in New York, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like slowly get acclimatized to that setting and then it's you can't be starstruck all the time, right? So <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's just like, all right, yeah, that's yeah, that's, that's how it is here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We read up that you actually played with Bob Dylan at some point, is that correct? Or yeah, I mean, yeah, it was a, uh, yeah, <laughs> it was a, uh, a Went Marsalis record, United We Swing. It was just an mm -hmm, overdub. Okay. Okay. Um, but yeah, it was it, it was cool. Uh, he wasn't he wasn't in the studio, but it was cool to like be playing next to Winton while like Bob Dylan's in my headphones. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's kind of wild. I'm like, oh wow. So, <laughs> like, all right, here's Winton right next to me, and and we're playing along with Bob Dylan. <laughs> You know, so it was it was, it was cool. Mm -hmm. And another one that um, stuck out, it seemed like, was you played with Solange. Was that on like a tour or like a big pop show, or was that? That was a, um, we did a couple dates uh, or a, a lot of dates. Um, one was uh, at the Guggenheim Museum. Oh, okay. uh, it was a uh, it's kind of like a performance art piece, um, and it was like partially us kind of remixing some music from her, like her second to last record. Uh, not when I get home, 
um, the seat at the a table. A seat at the table. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it was like a part of us kind of remixing that. And then also like there was a period at the end of the show where we straight up like played free for like maybe two minutes. It's just like, and we're talking like, like large bands, you know? <laughs> um, and so it was, it, was, it was really cool. That was a, that was a great project. And then I did, did some shows in LA, did a FYF Fest. That was okay. a huge, huge yeah. crowd. That was really fun. Yeah. So what was that like? Would your approach be different to, um, you know, playing with this big group, playing with Solange and like, yeah, for example, at that uh, festival in Los Angeles, this massive like stadium show versus, you know, a club in New York? Yeah, I mean, it, uh, I mean, uh, um, obviously, uh, creatively, I have less say, way less say, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, but what was nice is uh, I actually really trusted her in, in the situations. Um, she was really a part of the process. Uh, usually with like big pop stars like that, the musicians are pretty much, you know, um, on their They're own until separated. the gig. Yeah. Yeah. Very separated. Um, mm-hmm. uh, like I, I did a, I did the Victoria's Secret fashion show with Sean Mendez mm-hmm. and like he came in and we, we just, we were, we sound checked and then we did the gig, you know? Uh, so with, with Solange, I was, I was really, you know, she was, she was making the, 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 she was creating the, the choreography. She was creating the horn part. She was, uh, you know, all of that. She, she had a, she played a part in everything. She had, she came up with the idea, like, you know, I'm thinking maybe at the end of the concert, we like, we just like play, play free for like two minutes, you know? Yeah. Um, so she she was really a part of the process. So it kind of gained a lot of trust from all of the musicians. It was like, oh yeah, sure, we we were with it, you know, and it came out really really great. Yeah, and I we did touch on Philadelphia a little bit and sort of like the scene and stuff. I was kind of curious because we didn't get to it. Um, how did you like? What age were you when you initially started playing the saxophone? And like, how how what was that first sort of introduction to music like? Um. So I, I started playing music when I was three. I started on violin. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> and it was sad. I was whack. I was whack on violin. Um, <laughs> and I tried piano. Also was was pretty whack. Um, and uh, I tried singing. Also, I wasn't good at it. Uh, and part, really, really, what it kind of was was I, you know, I I knew I liked music, you know. Um, but I didn't, I hadn't found the correct vessel to really mm. kind of, you know, do what I wanted to do. Um, and I found out you could join the band early in the third grade if you had your own instrument. So I badgered my parents to give me a saxophone, which really just ended up being next in line. I was like, well, let's just try this out, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it stuck, you know, it, it really stuck. So, <laughs> and that was eighth grade. I mean, I'm sorry, third grade. I think you're eight years old. In yeah, yeah. So I was something like that. Okay. And, and so was jazz being played in the house or like, how, how, how did you get exposed to that? Or my, my pops, um, my pop pops played trombone and flute and my mom was a dancer. So both things were kind of before I was born, but in the, in the house, there was a lot of the arts, you know, there's a lot of music. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I, I think my first my first real record that I can remember is a James Brown 
like essentials record and i thought i knew all the songs off the album but really i was just kind of singing gibberish <laughs> you know um but yeah so i was like black music was always kind of around you know my parents loved like grand central station uh you know prince um you know yeah so yeah like because uh, we did a little research and we saw like a video of you when you're 12 years old playing on giant steps oh, man. <laughs> oh lord <laughs> humble beginnings <laughs> no, but, uh, still very impressive for that such a young age right i mean yeah, 12 years old yeah i was I, I was definitely hungry i was i, I liked i like playing <laughs> I, I i enjoyed it yeah yeah and i mean growing up um sort of you know just outside philadelphia but you're obviously in the city a lot um i guess you were probably born sort of right when the uh, neo soul movement was happening in philadelphia um yeah you know jill scott and the roots and those jam sessions all those legendary stories um was that did you feel that influence in the city as well totally totally um i mean jill scott was a big influence when i when i first started um, and also all of, all of her musicians were on the Philly scene, you yeah. know? Um, and so like, even at the same time as, as, as me, like, like playing with the Sunrise Orchestra or, you know, Mickey Roker, uh, or like Edgar Bateman who lived in Philly on the jazz scene, like there was also like, um, you know, Spanky McCurdy or Adam Blackstone or uh, Corey Riker, Matt Cappy, who were playing in Jill Scott's band, you know, yeah. um, or playing a lot of bands at that time. Um, and so, uh, you know, that that was a that was a big influence on me as well. I I mean, that's some of my favorite music for sure. And if we could talk a little bit about practicing and sort of practice sessions. And so when you. I guess it must have changed over time, but what is sort of your approach to practicing and how do you set it up and what are you spending your time on and stuff? Maybe you could like go into that a little bit. Um, yeah, man, a lot of it is, uh, my, man, my practice, my practice routine is really boring. Uh, I do a lot of long tones. Uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm all about the essentials. It's like long tones, a lot of etudes. Uh, from, if, I, if I can plug some books. Close A etudes, I do those. I do uh, furling etudes. Uh, Gila Core is good. Um, Universal method for saxophone. Um, yeah, a, a lot of it's that and then transcription. You know, yeah. I think that that usually covers all my basis of what I need to know, you know, or what I need to work on. Um, you can find something in all of those things that will help with whatever yeah. you, you, you have problems with. Um, and a lot of it became me kind of making uh, little equations up to fix my problems. So if I had problems with articulation, then I would check out Coleman Hawkins and play the Furling A2 number two, you know? Mm. Um, so it, it got down to what I kind of touched on before of like, you know, kind of understanding just like that deep DNA of like what makes something what it is, you know, what, like what is the purpose of the Furling A2 um, you know, and then like what aspects of Coleman Hawkins or what aspects of someone's playing has like good art, who has good articulation, you know, Cannonball Adderley, Coleman Hawkins, those are the first two that 
come right off the bat for me, you know, yeah. Clifford Brown, mm-hmm. you know, um, and so understanding that, and then maybe doing some work with the metronome, you know, uh, just kind of, you know, just, I, I would just make up little exercises for myself. Um, just, you know, just uh, based in logic, you know, that's really what it kind of came down to. Sure. And in terms of hours, like what was sort of, how many hours were you doing a day roughly? Man, I would, uh, I would do like, I, I could, I, I could do about five hours, five, wow. six hours. Um, now, uh, I mean, now it's really about just having the horn out, like, mm-hmm. um, keeping the horn out allows me to spend all day doing it, you know, um, and just doing it in doses and it becomes a 12 hour thing versus like a concerted, you know, I might do like a, a concerted hour and then, you know, go do something else. And then, you know, especially, especially when I'm in New York right now, I'm in Philly at my house uh, and it's a little bit more lax, you know? Um, but when I was in New York um, or whenever I, I'm there, I just put my horn on the stand and it's basically, it turns into an all day kind of, festivity <laughs> and that like uh five hours five hours six hour practice sessions was that um consistent for you you know throughout uh high school or university even or yeah I, I think it was um uh consistency was really important and uh repetition was important you know mm-hmm. um and what that meant you know repetition in terms of like over, you know, the macro or in the micro. So, you know, as much as I was practicing the same things over and over within the six hours, uh, I was also practicing the same kind of ideas over and over, over like, you know, months. Yeah. And um, yeah, this, this may seem like a bit of a simple question, but I think uh, a lot of different musicians have different, philosophies about practicing and um you know different ways of going about it do you enjoy practicing like do you enjoy really working through those long tunes or sorry long tones and the etudes um i i do i do um but it's the same it's the same feeling i get from like working out you know um so it like some of it hurts you know but it feels really good after you know um but then some things I enjoy, you know, uh, like I enjoy lifting weights, you know, um, but I really don't like doing planks, mm. you know, like planks really, they, they <laughs> those things, man, you know, yeah. uh, but so it's like in my, you know, uh, but it's all a part of working out. And at the end, I'm like, whoa, I'm done. Like, this feels great, you know, and it's the same with practicing. I enjoy certain aspects of it. And I don't others, but it always feels really good afterwards. Um, yeah, for sure. And also just understanding that you're kind of contributing to a large, a larger project progress is it, it it feels feels good, you know. Yeah, and you mentioned you're in Philadelphia right now, but you were living in New York before, and we we're just kind of interested in getting like a little bit of information, like how have things changed recently, you know, with the pandemic and everything and what's happened to all the musicians in New York. And, yeah. You know, how's everyone doing? I'm, I'm back and forth. I still have my apartment there. So like I'm going up tomorrow, uh, for like about four or five days. Um, mm-hmm. but yes, yeah, it's, it's, 
it's tricky. Um, a lot of people are creating opportunities, which is really good to see. Um, there's a lot of stuff popping up, uh, things to do, think places to play outside or live streamed. Um, but yes, yeah, I mean, it's a tough time for everybody. You know, uh, I've been, uh, thankful, uh, to be able to have a family close to me, you know, um, where it's like Philly's only an hour or two hours away from New York city. Um, so I was able to kind of make this, make this trip back. But a lot of people are, you know, but hunkering down in New York. Um, yeah. and a lot of people don't have the luxury to, you know, I'm playing, I'm playing a blue note with Joel Ross on Friday. So mm-hmm. people don't have a luxury to take gigs in New York, you know, mm-hmm. while, still living you know away so um i think i think everybody's experience is different in terms of handling this um but i i i think you know i've i've believed in um artists during this time to keep creating and also for presenters to find interesting ways to still you know present the music to the people which is good what's your sort of daily schedule look like right now at this point and like well how are you filling up your days man it's it's a lot of things uh um it's really right now it's a lot of writing it's a lot of practicing it's a lot of working out it's a lot of watching a lot of movies you know (laughs) um like simply uh and then there's some like random stuff that i've been interested in like set design or like uh uh I mean, I've always been in the visual art and museums just kind of open back up. So I've been going to a lot of museums mm. uh, again, which is, which is, I'm thankful for that. Um, uh, I don't know, video editing, you know, I, I don't know, anything, you know, it's kind of like this, this time kind of lends itself to just, you know, more random, random stuff. Sure. You know? Exciting things you'd never get the chance to otherwise. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's been cool. It's been cool. And, and a lot of family time I'm, I'm home. So mm. That's, that's nice, you know. Cool. Yeah, we've kind of starting to get to the point where we wanted to wrap it up and we wanted to maybe ask you a little bit about some future plans you have, like things that you're maybe have set up. I heard that you might be going to the studio again soon to record another thing or. <laughs> yeah, uh, man. I mean, uh, hopefully, hopefully soon. Uh, we have, we have enough music for, for about five more albums. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, so yeah, we're ready at any point. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, I got a, um, I got some stuff coming up. I, I have something, uh, in Brooklyn at roulette that'll probably be live streamed. Um, and that's a commissioned work, a new work. Uh, and I'm also doing a collaboration with, um, a dance company, uh, this lady, Citra Bell Dance New York is the name of the company. Um, we're doing some works in progress in November and then uh, the premiere will be some time after that. But those are the two things that I'm really developing right now, along with actually, okay, three things. And then uh, Kimmel Center Commission. Uh, I've been artist in residence at the Kimmel Center for, I guess, since January. But, th- you know, things kind of obviously shut down. So, it's been on sort of a halt, but we're still we're still working on finalizing everything with that. So yeah. those three things are, are are keeping me busy. That's good. Yeah. And if we could just circle back um for a second to 
uh, the live stream shows. I mean, it's been great for us here because <laughs> we're getting to see, you know, these crazy New York musicians in our own living rooms, um, uh, the live shows. But how is it different for you um, as a performer? Are you, does like do clubs in New York, are they allowing anyone in at this point or is it no audience? Uh, Smalls small is allowing like, I think it's like 25% of capacity. So yeah. there's like maybe eight people. Yeah. Um, but I haven't played Smalls yet. Um, the Jazz Gallery is allowing like, I think like three or four people in and the tickets are like, like, and the idea is, you know, it's basically nothing's open yet, you know, Um, but it's slowly, slowly they're allowing, you know, people in. I I was telling somebody what what I really miss the most is like um, having like a hundred people packed in a room to listen to like four people, you know, Mm -hmm. just like the way the energy kind of transfers in that way. It's like, like a hundred people putting like, a bunch of energy all on like four people on stage. You know, I, I miss what that feels like, exactly, you know? Yeah. So. Sure. And then for like, maybe a last question, just, uh, I like to ask artists about their sort of biggest musical or just artistic influences in general at the end. Do you want to list some names or talk about certain people just to kind of top it off? Yeah. Um, I mean, definitely gospel music, any, any gospel music. Um, but then also, uh, for saxophone, John Coltrane, Charlie Parker, those are the obvious. <laughs> and then uh, Ornette Coleman, Henry Threadgill, uh, Benny Carter, Ben Webster, um, Kenny Garrett. Uh, yeah. And for composition, Brian Blade, okay. Aaron Parks, um, Ambrose Akimusery, uh gospel music once again <laughs> great well thank you so much manny wilkins for taking the time today and we hope everyone goes and checks out your album omega and we look forward to seeing what you do in the future and yeah thank you so much it's yes, been thanks nice. a lot thank y'all thanks for having me absolutely fun all right well have a good day man <laughs> thanks you too yeah. peace